You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, before we officially get started, I have an announcement just to make church-wide. Next Sunday, September 17th, we're... You've been hearing about the visioning process for a while, and definitely during the summer, things calmed down a little bit. But over the summer, we've prepared a few pieces of kind of publication just to let everybody know what's happening in the vision process uh, in our, and what kind of the results of all the listening was and the praying. And so we're rolling out three different pieces of media, just uh, three brochures kind of things that'll help. Um, help you see what's going on. The first one is a layout of the big picture of identity, purpose, and six tenets, like those six places that we were focusing our energies, worship, communication, shepherding, outreach, ministry development, and discipleship. So that's one, and that's coming out next week. And the second will be a large trifold, which will include the details of the ideas generated by the process. So the second one will have more of the details. And the last one will be, this is kind of cool, a book of prayers and devotions starting on Sunday, September 24th. We're going to encourage everybody to pray together as a church about uh, God's leadership of us. Everyone will be invited to use that booklet to guide us in that prayer, and we'll pray through each of these six tenets, taking a week with each one. For six weeks, there will be a daily verse with short devotion and a prayer for each day. So it's kind of a way to unite a big church to do some of that stuff, and It's always difficult when you go through a process like this that's meant to be a whole church praying to the Lord and discerning these kinds of things. And so maybe as corporate as it might feel, it's one of the ways to kind of connect us so that we have something in our hands that we can see, read about, pray, generate questions that we might have, stuff like that. And you can also avoid my class the next three weeks if you want to and go to Andrew's class where he'll be talking about that on September 17th, 24th and October one. Um, they'll, those classes, though, will always be available online if you prefer to hang out here. And I'm actually really glad that we've got um, a smaller group today because it's kind of a, it's a more low-key and devotional and chill thing where we'll be kind of processing together and expanding, almost devotionally exegeting or, or looking at these various prayers. So this week and the next three weeks, I'm pulling out four different prayers from our liturgy and focusing that and the joke is evidently abby walks by this sheet last night my wife and uh and she says prayer of humble access you're doing a whole class on prayer of humble access how long and so i told andrew that and uh andrew's like you know maybe you should have retorted are you a christian or something like that but uh no Uh, it's true and i mean it's kind of funny that we're spending all this time on a few phrases but i think if we unpack it especially if we look at um the scriptures we'll We'll find out a little bit more, and certainly it's a small class. Raise your hands, ask any questions. But hopefully this this encourages your faith and strengthens you in prayer and in your relationship with God. That's kind of my ultimate hope for this. So um, let's actually read this prayer together. It's in the left column there. And let's pray it aloud. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. 
Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Holy Spirit, we ask today that as we explore your word and your word uh, as explored in this prayer, that you would move in us, that you would teach us and guide us, guide us into all truth. Amen. I want to give you just a little bit of background of this particular prayer, and then hopefully we'll spend the bulk of our time talking about it and listening to a song together and reflecting. There are sort of two things I want to say about this prayer. I want to talk about the concept of this prayer, and then I want to talk about the uh, actual words of the prayer itself. Um, the concept of this prayer actually predates the English prayer book. The idea that at some moment in the communion liturgy, a minister would pray a prayer basically humbling themselves before the Lord, before coming to the table, was not universal, but at least present in, in prayer books previous to the English prayer book. And that English prayer book came about in the, in the 16th century uh, under the architecture of Thomas Cranmer. But before that, the liturgy, you would have experienced the worship service totally in Latin. And if you were an English speaker, you wouldn't have heard much of it. But um, if a priest prayed a prayer of humble access of some kind, it would have often sounded like this. And it would have looked like that too. It would have been inaudible. You wouldn't really have known what was going on. It would have been in Latin. And it would have been purpose, purposeless given the conception of worship for you to understand what that was. Because the priest was preparing himself to mediate the presence of God for the people of God. And so um, they had kind of a, a very Old Testament conception of themselves entering into the holy place. So while it wasn't your prayer, it was definitely the priest's prayer to pray. And so uh, hold that thought. That's what came to the English Reformation at the time. That was the received tradition. That If there was a kind of prayer like this, that that's how it happened. Um, the actual words of the prayer, though, there really are no parallels to this particular prayer, the prayer of humble access, before Thomas Cranmer and before the English prayer book. It's not like this was a Latin prayer before that they translated into English. In fact, this prayer, as short as it is, is stitching together of about four or five different things. Some scripture, some prayers received previously, and that's why I kind of have some of the references on the right, is to see, just so you can get in the mind of the person who put this prayer together in English. Uh, he definitely, Cranmer definitely took liberties in making it poetic and beautiful, because he really believed that we're not just sort of supposed to pray to God with technical language, but we're supposed to pray to God in a way that excites and energizes our whole being and the senses and the affections. And so you have these evocative English words. I mean, that's part of the reason that people remember the prayer of humble access more than any other prayer in English-speaking liturgy is because it has that way of evoking images and ideas, you know? Um, and so that's what Cranmer did. He stitched together that beginning part from a couple of really early liturgies, this whole not presuming to come to the table, trusting in righteousness part. And the next bit, we're not worthy so much as to gather up. That's probably the phrase that everyone just you know, immediately clicks into. And Andrew actually preached a brilliant sermon on that Matthew text um, three weeks ago that I would encourage. It was one of the best sermons I've heard in a long time. Um, on that very text and on that scene and that woman and, and things in there. That third line, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. It comes from a, a collect that predates the, the English speaking, um, 
English-speaking liturgy, but Cranmer translated and put in the middle where it was at the front before. And interestingly, he stitched that together. And I, I put those psalms there because we'll see why those are relevant. Uh, Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood. The part that, if you're a Protestant, tend to kind of tweak your head a little bit when you hear those lines, right? And hopefully we'll go into that. Um, and then finally, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. A few passages of scripture that I think were probably on the tip of Cranmer's mind when he was putting that together. Okay, uh, you know, this was actually when it was in the 16th century, it wasn't called the Prayer of Humble Access. That name was given to it in the 17th century with the Scottish prayer book. That's the first time we see this title given in 1637. Uh, you opened up that prayer book and on the side it says, uh, this prayer of humble access. And that kind of stuck as being the name of this prayer. So thanks be the Scots. All right. Two takeaways from even just what I said. Number one, you see a huge difference in the fact that it's not a minister inaudibly praying this prayer alone, but Cranmer and the English reformers have given this prayer to the people of God. The priesthood of all believers is at play here. You know, It's that we all have access, right? And so we all should pray this prayer as we approach the table and come. It's not just for ministers to do, but it's for the whole body of Christ, right? And that's significant. The whole church gets to pray this prayer. If you were an English speaker in the 16th century, it probably would have hit you as odd that you're praying a prayer like this because you've never heard or prayed anything like this in corporate worship before. And the second thing is you notice all the quotations and allusions to scripture. And I say this time and again about the prayer book, which I love, is that even the prayers that we pray that are on our tongues are gifts of God because they're scripture. So God gives us scripture to pray back to him. So it's, it's kind of cool because uh, when we're engaging in a prayer book liturgy like we do, there's a sense in which we can't even approach God with our own words. We don't even know what to say. And so God graciously comes and says, here, I'm not going to leave you alone to pray. I'm going to give you words, you know, and that's a, that's an encouragement to you. I was with a man this week who is really struggling to know whether he should continue living or not. I'll just put it that way. And he didn't know how to talk to God. And I could have coached him on some things, but instead I kind of took a cue from this idea. And I just said, here's a couple of Psalms. When you don't know what to pray, pray these. Remember, you have the Lord's Prayer. You have other things that when your tongue is stammering, you have the Word of God to pray back to God. And frankly... The Psalms are wonderful because they're, as, as Calvin put it, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, which means that in any season of life, you've got something in there that will resonate off your mouth and you will find really appropriate, even audacious things that feel like we shouldn't, shouldn't talk that way to God are in the Psalms. Read Psalm 13, read uh, Psalm 130, read a few other spots and you'll find these audacious prayers being prayed to God. And so in the prayer of humble access, we have scripture. We have God's word that God graciously gives to us to pray to him. So looking at the text. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. Now, what would it mean to presume to approach God in our own righteousness? I want to read to you from Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. He says it well. He kind of sets the stage for 
what it means to forget that we have nothing to bring to the table. He said, man's heart does not understand nor believe that so great a treasure, namely the Holy Ghost, is given by only hearing of faith. But man instead reasons after this manner. Forgiveness of sins, deliverance, the giving of the Holy Ghost, of righteousness, of everlasting light. They're great things. Therefore, if thou wilt obtain these inestimable benefits, thou must perform some other great and weighty matter. That's our reasoning. That's our normal carnal reasoning. This opinion, the devil doth like well and approve and also increaseth the same in the heart. Therefore, when reason heareth this, thou canst do nothing for the obtaining of forgiveness of sins, but only hear the word of God. By and by it crieth out and saith, no, you make too small of an account of the remission of sins. So the inestimable greatness of the gift is the cause we, is the cause we cannot believe it. And because this incomparable treasure is offered freely, therefore it's despised. Okay? We have to recognize that it is the default disposition of every last human being, Christian and non-Christian alike, to try to approach God and try to approach life on our own righteousness. It's the way we're always going to go, which is why we need continual and perpetual confession and repentance daily because we're just always going to slip back even and that's the tension that's what that's what Luther calls the simul justus et peccator we're simultaneously just and sinner which means that in this overlapping of the age where Christ has come before he comes again he's inaugurated the kingdom and what that means for you and me as individuals is that Christ lives in me and yet I still have these members these this flesh as Paul calls it that is constantly crying out and trying to silence the word of faith, the word of the gospel in my life and crying out to approach God on my own. And that flesh despises the word that you bring nothing to the table. You know, that flesh, your flesh, if you are enjoying, we do not presume to come to this trusting in our own righteousness. That is Christ in you. That is the spirit in you delighting in that because the flesh hates that, not just dislikes it, hates it, all right? That's the opposition that you and I feel in tension on a regular basis. And so the question is, what would it mean to presume to approach God in our own righteousness? Well, you can count a thousand ways that you and I do this, even when we're not sort of thinking about approaching God in a week. It is so easy to forget the grace and the gospel. Um, the mature Christian, I believe, is one who says with David in Psalm 51, the mature Christian is one who says, my sin is ever before me. I just see it. I go to bed with it. I wake up with it. Even on what I perceive as good days, it's just not as good as it looked. You know, I, that's actually the sign of Christian maturity. The sign of Christian maturity isn't, I'm getting better. It's more my sin is ever before me. You know, it's because the deeper you go into that reality, and God is gracious not to reveal that all at once, right? Um, but the deeper we go into that reality, the higher. I mean, think about it like a hill. You go down a hill and there's a mountain peak there. The lower you go into that valley, the higher the peak gets. And God's kind of in that business that growth means being able to see the gospel for as, as beautiful and 
as big and the cross as gracious and as powerful as it is. And so God is graciously over the course of our life going to be peeling back the onion of your heart and stripping back the layers over time. And what it means to not to presume to come to the table is very much to say, you're peeling back the layers, Lord, and you know, you know, you know, Almighty God, all hearts are open, right? We do not presume to come to this thy table. All right, this word table. The reformers were very interested in prioritizing and overhauling a word that was used in worship a lot, and it was the word altar. They really wanted to use the word table, mostly because it was biblical. I mean, wholly because it was biblical. To call this place where we go for communion a table but also because the difference between an altar and a table at the time of the 16th century meant that the gospel was at stake. And part of the reason that coming to the table is valuable for you and me to hear is that a table, an altar is a place where something gets sacrificed and hewn and cut up. And so that was the theology of the day that at this table we were offering up the sacrifice of Jesus to placate God. All right? And the reformer said, I read the scriptures and that offering and sacrifice happened once for all on the cross. That seems to be overwhelmingly the, the testimony of the book of Hebrews and the book of John and the Gospels and the way that they present Christ's crucifixion. That was a once for all deal, right? Much more important is to go back to the first time Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper around the table and to think about the fact. And this is where what I mean when I say they wanted the gospel to feel clear. The difference between approaching an altar as a sinner who needed to sacrifice something to get God to not be mad at you anymore versus a table makes all the difference in the world, right? I mean, imagine being invited into someone's home, you know, and imagine that as what is going on in communion. And so even though we are humble, we have access and we have a Lord Jesus who says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to my table. I'm preparing it for you. I love you. That's what That's what I hope that as you come to this table, as you pray this prayer, you hear is the overwhelming word to you. We hear the word, you are a sinner. But shouting down that reality is Christ's louder, greater word that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It is the words, I love you. It's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you. I love you. Table is I love you. We do not presume to come to this thy table, but yet you're welcoming us with your I love you. That's If you're imagining anything in the moment of coming to the table, imagine Christ in a home welcoming you to dine with him, to laugh with him, to swap stories and to enjoy his presence as you would enjoy a close friend, you know? Um, yes. Amen. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. It's my favorite line. Um, I don't know about you. I want to read this episode from Matthew 15. And if you come in future weeks, bring your Bibles because we'll be opening up a lot of Bible. Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. Check this episode out. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region, a Canaanite woman from that region, 
came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. You know, you sense the desperation in that moment. I mean, when our kids are sick, especially if they have some deep illness, something chronic that won't go away. I mean, how many nights have you cried out, God, I, can I have this? Can I, can you take, take this from my kid and give it to me? Because the suffering is too much. And it's almost worse as a parent, you know, to, to watch your kid suffer. Who, uh, and you want to be able to alleviate the suffering. And you're willing. You're just like, I'll take it. The rest of my life, I'll take it, God. You know, how many fathers and mothers have cried out as their kid is in some major surgery, um, desperate to exchange places, right? And that's, that's the desperation of this woman here. Desperate. Have mercy. My daughter's oppressed. She's lost all sense of decorum. I mean, a Canaanite woman who knows anything about anything doesn't walk up to a Jewish man and talk like this, all right? So there's an urgency and a true just cry of her heart that's just coming out very honestly that's just, you know, not present otherwise in those of us who have guarded hearts, right? She's obviously someone who's not presuming to come worthily. She's just coming because she needs to and she hears that this man can heal and that's that's the equation right there. That's all that's going on, right? But he did not answer her a word and his disciples came and begged him, send her away. For she's crying out after us. Some noxious woman over here. Gosh, we have more important things to do. I mean, aren't you going to be ushering in the kingdom and taking your crown? You don't have time to deal with this Canaanite woman. You know, she's Canaanite. She's not even one of us. And she's a woman. They're kind of not a big deal in our culture, right? You know, and and so Jesus says this shocking thing, which I think Andrew handled really well uh, when he told us, it sounds like Jesus is being pretty mean here. Sounds like Jesus might be even being a little racist. But if you listen to the way Jesus is doing this within earshot of and in response to the disciples, it is as though he's cutting them to the heart by voicing what they would never really want to say, but they do say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa, okay. Um, And that was probably what was really on the heart of the disciples. And sometimes to be able to hear what's on our heart, we need someone else to be able to say it and then go, that's really bad, isn't it? I mean, sometimes when I'm, disciplining my children and I'm talking to them about something horrible they said. I said, pause for a moment. I'm going to say what you just said verbatim. I say it and if they're honest when I say it, I say, how does that sound? They will normally say, that sounded really bad. That sounded horrible. Would you say that to someone you love? No, I wouldn't, right? It was one of those moments where Jesus is kind of exposing the heart because look at what happens next. And she smartly and beautifully says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fell at their master's table. She kind of jumps into his metaphor and one-ups him. She said, I'll take dog if I can just get a crumb for my... That's how desperate she is, right? Then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Be done as you deserve. Why is her faith great? Because she's not presuming to come by anything of her own merit. In fact, she's very honest about her demerit. All right? And Jesus is basically saying, disciples, she gets it. Take a cue from this foreign 
godless, supposedly, woman, right? She's actually teaching you in this moment, guys. All right? It's, it's just beautiful, powerful. It's like reading. You've got to read between the lines in a, in a story like this. What I love about, why, about Cranmer inserting this prayer and what I see him doing several times that I haven't really heard other people observe about the prayer book is that the prayer book is almost like play acting in a way where Cranmer gives us different characters to be at various points. And have you ever thought, this is a kind of weird thought that may send you in some cool directions in your personal prayer life. Have you ever thought maybe to sort of pray like one of the Bible characters? Maybe you're in a certain phase of life and you resonate with a certain person in Scripture who's talking to God in a certain way. Have you ever thought about maybe assuming the mindset of that person and praying to God in that way? Because in many ways, that's what this prayer is trying to do for us. We'll observe this in the morning prayer, prayer of confession. I think Cranmer's trying to get us into the minds of a few Bible characters. But here, I think Cranmer would have us all be the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman. I think that's what, what kind of posture we're assuming, desperation, just clinging to the robes. Heal me, Lord. Heal me. Heal my daughter. Heal me. Heal my family. Heal me. And rather than sort of talk about the um, what that means dispositionally, I heard a song this week from a friend of mine named Caroline Cobb. Turn your sheets over to the backside. It's from a totally different section of the Gospels, but I found the disposition and the tone of this song that she just wrote recently um, so fitting for what I think is the spirit of the prayer of humble access. And I want you to hear it and just meditate with me a little bit. sits with the sinners, who dines with the drunkards, and loves the enemy. Oh, who is this man who won't cast a stone, but honors the harlot who washes his Calls us 
song isn't it um it's a great song you should probably sing it on a thursday sometime yeah. <laughs> um yeah it's it's interestingly from the perspective of the pharisees right who are asking all these questions of jesus but you hear um you hear the spirit of the syrophoenician woman who stands at the side while the pharisees go head to head with jesus and that spirit that humility that pervades it, I think very much captures what the whole soul of the prayer of humble access is, right? And I would say this is the very spirit of the Christian. This is the spirit of the Christian every day, Monday through Saturday and on through Sunday. One passage of scripture, this Matthew 22 bit, is something that I think is all over, but I haven't heard anyone say about the prayer of humble access. It's pr- someone's probably written it somewhere, but I haven't read it yet. Uh, I think is really telling because people often point to this Matthew passage or the Mark passage that deal with the Canaanite slash Syrophoenician woman. But Matthew 22, I think is also pretty telling. I'm just going to read it and make one comment before going on. Matthew 22, 1 to 10. Jesus has a parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call for those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them, The king was angry and he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Interestingly enough, Jesus is turning worthiness upside down. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find, just random people on the street. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all who they found both bad and good. (laughs) 
So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And those people became worthy simply because they were invited by the king. That constitutes worthiness, right? When we come approaching God in our own righteousness, in our own worthiness, we're not really coming. We're not really seeing what's going on. We're not really seeing the Jesus and who is there. And then another favorite line of the prayer of humble access, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. It's not even who whose property most of the time is to be merciful. You know, it's not even whose property just every time, but that one time it's always, I mean, what a powerful English word <laughs> always whose property is to always have mercy the trump card in God's own heart that superintends everything else is his love. His love always, mercy triumphs over judgment, as the scriptures say, right? So this merciful love characterizes God at his core. In scripture, you can look up these phrases, God is something. And there are a few uh, statements out there, but the one that receives the most spotlight is God is love, Right? And this is the God who welcomes us. And I hear in these Psalms, Psalms 86 and 103 and 145, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That phrase is all over the prophets. It's in the the early books of the Bible in the Pentateuch a little bit. And it's three times in the Psalms. It's as though we need it drilled into our head that God is actually slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I mean, what kind of God is this? I was preparing for the Sunday school lesson yesterday. And as God would have it, one of my children was really extra difficult yesterday. Um, And Abby and I were trying to decide together whether to mete out a just consequence for his actions. And this stupid psalm (laughs) was resonating in my head, but I, I couldn't bring myself to pull the trigger of mercy. Um, he just didn't deserve it. and He really did not deserve it. Really did not. And it's just the same pattern of behavior again and again and again. And I'm just so tired of it as a dad. I'm just tired of it. And so I wasn't ready to meet it out. And thankfully, kind of like a little microcosm, I think of the Trinity maybe, the, the oneness of the husband and wife, you know, talking with each other. Abby had the right word, which was to give mercy. Um, not because he deserved it, but just because. And I sighed and said, well, I guess I'll try to be slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And I'd like to say, actually, that this mercy was met by great behavior and just a wonderful, it just didn't happen. In fact, he probably got a little worse. And so I go through the psychology of being a father in that moment and just wanting to withhold every ounce of mercy. That is not our God. Our God is very different. Our God is much more liberal with his mercy than I am as a father. And if you're feeling far away from God, remember that we serve a God. And look across the world religions, folks, at the other gods that are out there to choose from. This is the only God whose property is to always have mercy. Our God in Christ is a God whose property is always to have mercy. That is a beautiful gift that you're not given anywhere else on this planet. And it is all because of the cross of Christ. 
Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood. Now I want to turn uh, to John 6. Read this passage sometime. Meditate not only on the particular quotation that's being quoted here. I mean, and if you have trouble with this, you've got to go, I I guess I've got trouble with Scripture because this is scriptural, okay? And it's hard. It's hard to process this given if you know anything about the Protestant and Roman Catholic debates about this kind of stuff, the history. It's hard to figure out, but Scriptures don't shy away from giving us hard words. And in fact, they do that on purpose to drive us back to to cling like the Syrophoenician woman in faith to the God who can't be fully known yet is revealed in Christ, right? So John 6, starting in verse 49, hear this word. Jesus is teaching here. Uh, He's talking about being the bread of life. And he says, your fathers, your Jewish fathers, ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He's referring to, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus like, adventures in missing the point. All right. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you, and so Jesus kind of digs right into it. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood... And this is part of the last section of the prayer. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in him, and you hear the echoes of that we may ever dwell in him and he in us, all right? As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever, okay? So I actually see Jesus making a a sharp contrast between physical bread, manna that's out there, and the very real flesh and body of himself. And he's saying it's this stuff that gives you life, not that stuff, all right? These things are tokens to help you remember. These things are ways of kind of mediating that encounter so that it's physical for you because in your brokenness, you're so weak that you you struggle to hear the gospel. So I'm not going to only give it to you to hear with your ears, but I'm going to give it to you to, as strange as this sounds, to hear with your mouth. To hear with your mouth and taste and see in this token. And what I love about the Syrophoenician woman saying, not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, is that God invites us and ahead of us, you and me, is a wedding feast. It's going to happen. A party to end all parties. Whatever is the the best party you've ever been to, multiply that by infinity and you've got an idea of what heaven is going to be like. That is in store for us, right? Jesus prepares this table. That's in store. And in a way, when we come to communion and receive a small piece and a small drink, it's like crumbs from heaven, you know? It's a metaphor for, of course, this isn't really going to satisfy you here. But remember what's ahead. Remember my promise to you that's irrevocable, that's going to happen because I've invited you and I'm going to give you in a small taste in a small way this reality. 
And as Article 39 of um, the Articles of Religion for, for the Anglican Communion states, and this is how we process this theologically, just to get into the theology a little bit. The body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after a heavenly and spiritual manner. And the mean whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is faith. Okay? So there is a true spiritual encounter with Jesus, a true at this table spiritual feeding on him, right? That's what we mean when we're saying that we may eat his flesh and drink his blood. We're talking about Jesus giving himself to us in his entirety. And I hope that you feel like you can pray that prayer authentically and really, that spiritually, but truly and no less really because the spiritual world is just as real as this physical world. Don't let naturalism tell you otherwise, okay? Um, we are eating the flesh of the, of the Son of Man and we are drinking His blood and that is given, as He said, for the life of the world. Finally, that we may evermore dwell in Him and He in us. Read 1 Corinthians 10 sometime. It's got really important language, mystical language, even about what it means to take the cup as a participation in the, the blood of Jesus and the bread as a participation. It's very rich scriptural language there. But I want to turn to Galatians 2 to end us today. And hopefully this might have a newer and richer meaning if you've heard this passage before. Galatians 2.17 But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And this is the part. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Remember when I said at the beginning that if you take any pleasure in the beginning of that prayer, that is Christ who lives in you. The Holy Spirit of Christ who is in you. That is that one. I am crucified with Christ. This flesh that we're talking about, that's what's crucified on the cross, okay? And every day is your and my day to remember I, this the old man, the old Adam, the old Zach, the old Lida, is crucified with Christ. And I don't live. This life that I'm living right now, I don't... And it's strange because it's very... I mean, Luther describes it. He says, like, Paul's saying something really confusing and doesn't make any sense. But he's saying, I, I do live, but I don't live. Christ lives in me. I'm dead. You know? And Martin Luther has these great phrases where he dialogues with sin and Satan and says things like, you have no power over me. I'm dead. You have no claim. The law can't kill me anymore because I'm dead. And the life I live, I live in Christ. He is my righteousness. You have no claim, no territory here, right? Uh, it's just a beautiful way of talking about the Christian life in Christ, right? Which is a paradox. It just happens again and again and again that we may evermore dwell in Him and He in us. And that's the ultimate goal of the table is to remind us, I am crucified with Christ. And as I dwell in Him and hide myself in His robes, He lives. He lives and does good works for my neighbor. And He loves everyone around me. And my vocation as a doctor or a singer or a lawyer or a, a homemaker, or anything else. My vocation is Christ loving my neighbor through me, right? That's what I'm here to do. Love my neighbor through my call. And it is Christ in me. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm dead. But I am living in Christ, and Christ is in me, that we may evermore dwell in Him, and He in us. Let us pray.
Oh, Father, we ask that you would sink the spirit of this prayer more deeply into our bones so that we may understand what it means to come to you both humbly but with full access as sons and daughters of the King. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.